0: Hello, wonderful humans. Welcome back to the TFC Audio Project. On this episode of Health Conversations, I speak with Moses Bernard, and we get into the weeds on how to rebuild our broken healthcare system from the ground up. We cover the fundamental problems in today's system, some first principles and assumptions that we know to be true, and we talk about how the entire education system from kindergarten all the way up to medical school needs to change in order to achieve sustainable health by shifting our cultural values. It was our first time speaking together, and I really enjoyed the conversation with Moses. We hope you find the conversation and the content valuable and useful in order to broaden your perspective and build some optimism on ways we can change the future of health. This episode of the show was brought to you by our newly launched education platform called Beam Tribe. The four letters used to spell the word BEAM in this case stand for Bridging Experience and Mindfulness, And although the practice component of the platform is based on the balance beam tool and progressions and tasks that you can work on, beam tribe also has a theory section, which includes content aimed to improve your understanding of concepts related to health. And it also covers actionable tools that you can start implementing in your life in order to make progress every day on your health journey. If you visit beamtribe.com, we've made a bunch of the content and videos available for free. And if you want full access, you can officially join the tribe and support our content team by purchasing an annual membership. This episode of the show is also brought to you by our family of partner brands listed at thefolkcollective.com. These companies have offered discounts or free gifts to our TFC community and also support TFC by helping to fund development and hosting of TFC app. We've developed relationships over time with great brands doing some good work and who align with TFC on the mission to create products that are good for your health and good for the planet. If you check out thefootcollective.com and click on the Partner Brands tab, you'll see a list of brands that offer you discounts. And by purchasing using those links or codes, it helps us keep TFC app free and evolving without ever having to load it with ads or to sell people's data. That's it for sponsors, so let's dig into this episode. Hope you enjoy. It's the TFC audio project hello wonderful humans nick here back for another episode of health conversations and my guest today is dr moses bernard so moses and i connected over instagram um, and we're speaking for the first time actually in person today but i think we share a lot of similar views when it comes to health so um you know one of his posts a while back made me realize we could probably have a, an awesome podcast conversation so moses thanks for taking the time on your saturday morning um and welcome to the show I'm excited
1: to be part of the show. I think it's going to be a lot of fun.
0: Cool. Yeah. Likewise. So, you know, I love the story time post you did not long ago about uh, William Halstead, the AKA the cocaine surgeon who uh, seems to have kicked off a a shocking system that we still use today. And it was a good illustration that I think a deeper, uh, a deeper conversation to be had about, you know, the way that things have always been done might not, might no longer be the way that we need to do things today and moving forward. So, Maybe to start with, let's start with the Coles Notes introduction of who Dr. Moses Bernard is, what you're all about and you know, what gets you out of bed every morning
1: so i am on paper i am a chiropractor i'm practicing in tampa florida but i am originally canadian so i grew up in saskatoon uh, went to college there my undergrad was in exercise phase biomechanics spent some time at ubc as well Uh, moved down to the us for chiropractic school to dallas texas um moved out here to Florida in 09. And my practice model at first was kind of the more traditional chiropractic things, but running in the background the entire time was my exercise phase, my kinesiology background. And there wasn't really, the two weren't really married. So what right. I knew about movement and exercise was not really being parroted in the rehabilitation world, so I started looking for ways to have a rehabilitative approach that made a little bit more sense based on everything I knew about movement and biomechanics and so on and so forth. So that let me da- led me down a uh, rehabilitation rabbit hole that started with. Uh, some functional movement systems readings, which led me to some DNS stuff, which led me to some PRI stuff, which eventually led me to some FRC, uh, functional range systems stuff. And that last piece kind of put it all together. And my practice model right now is really just based on teaching people how to use their bodies better.
0: Cool. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, this fundamental premise, um, that I've kind of come to understand over time is just that we need to empower the role of the health pros to empower individuals to have a better understanding of what they need to do. Right. Like I, I had the same realization where I came out of physio school and had kind of a, you know, uh, a personal movement background where I loved movement. And actually I didn't even really figure out what movement meant until pretty far after I graduated physio school. But um, you just realize that, if you're treating a patient and they're not on your team as an ally, take do it like taking care of themselves to make sure that the stuff you're helping to coach them with is actually being put into practice, then you're kind of working against each other. And I think I, you know, as time goes on, I realize that only the individual can truly make themselves healthy. We can guide them quite, you know, um, based on our experience and based on helping them change habits. But if they're not on your team and they don't have a good understanding of what they need to do, it's a very, very frustrating and, and hard road to make progress. So, yeah. You know,
1: I definitely, I definitely agree with you on that. And I feel like really communicating with the patient that listen, like by definition, any manual thing I do to you, any treatment you receive to me, Best is going to last for three hours. So (laughs) if you aren't doing stuff on your own, we are just spinning our gears. And there's better people out there to do that. So if your goal is 100% just get out of pain, like go to the pain management doctor because drugs are more effective than my hands in terms of getting out of pain. If you want to function so you're never in pain ever again, then let's have a conversation.
0: Yeah. And I, I, like I started the first assessment I would do with people. I started, um, doing this kind of like little spiel saying like, listen, I'm on your team. I want to help you reach, you know, get to wherever you want to go that, you know, I want to help you accomplish whatever reason you came to see me for. Um, but I can't do the work for you. And this is going to be work. This is not going to be something. If you want something easy and something done on you when you come here and not, and, and really leave, um, leave this clinic and not really have to put in any work well this is probably not the right place for you um but if you want to dig in and commit to, ch- to like changing your behavior and getting better permanently um then you're right then it's like okay let's troubleshoot uh here's where we start so um so yeah we we kind of spoke and you know you sent me a topic list and one of the big ones was rebuilding healthcare from scratch and you know i, I think that's we may as well just dig into the juicy stuff right off the bat. So That's I think that someone says rebuilding. Yeah. <laughs> when, when someone says rebuilding healthcare from scratch, I think at first glance, it almost seems like a dreamy thought experiment, but you know, I, I would personally argue that attempting to change the current system with, with permutations is simply not going to work. Like we're just, you know, that old Buckminster Fuller quote, don't try and change the system, create a new one that makes the old one obsolete. Yeah. I really think that I, we have to really like go down the first principles and say, okay, let's restart this control all delete because shit has gotten really far off off path. Um, so where do you want to start with this?
1: <laughs> so that is, um, I really like that quote. Um, something that, uh, kind of jumped into my head in terms of the rebuilding conversation was something I read from, uh, you've uh, Harari in, um, 21 Rules for the 21st Century. So this is the guy who uh, wrote Sapiens. And one of the things he talks about is education. And for most of the history of education, education was scarce. So you might only have one chance in your lifetime to ever come across a book. So if you come across it, you better memorize everything in there. And then even when the printing press came around, well... It was still only kind of middle class and up who might have access to books. And at the same time, you weren't buying entire encyclopedias every year. So it's really only been since kind of the advent of the Internet where information was plentiful, where for all of human history up until that point, information has been scarce. So now it's not a issue of memorizing information it's an issue of filtering through information right. so as far as rebuilding healthcare it starts with rebuilding education and making education not just about memorizing these facts it's about i guess fi- or being able to filter through all the new information coming in and being able to make sense of what matters um, So going back to the first principles conversation, well, what are the first principles? What do we know about what is making people sick and hurt right now? So off the top of your head, do you know some of the leading causes of, we'll start with death. So some of the leading causes of death in first world countries.
0: Well, I know, and back to just to slip something in there with Yuval Noah Harari, one of my favorite quotes from, from him, which relates directly to what you were saying is that information is no longer power. Clarity is power. And in yes. fact, I would argue that information alone in mass volumes is actually disempowering because it yields confusion, which puts us in a mess. And, and it, it, you know, even before we started recording, we were talking about how crazy it is that you and me can meet through the matrix and then materialize an actual, you know, a, a, a conversation with good substance to it. And it's, it is a crazy time that we live in right now. And I think, this old way of teaching people to, to essentially download information that they're taught by some authority um, and think that that's the truth and, and, you know, pay shitloads of money to learn that. So that kind of makes you really heavily invested in the fact that what you learned is the truth because you paid a lot of money to learn that. And I think we, we just don't teach people to be good thinkers we teach them to be good memorizers and that is just a, a broken system right out of the gate. So, Absolutely. um, so yeah, so it starts there, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think we get, you know, it's like when you go down a couple layers, you are like, Oh shit, there's like way more layers than I even thought to this thing. Um, but in terms of the question that you asked and uh, causes of death, I know I'm not a big one on, uh, I don't know all the stats, but I do know that all the shit that's killing us, are the things that take a long time to materialize and are mostly um, trickle-down effects of lifestyle. Absolutely. So, Yeah, so I don't know, what about you? So
1: I asked you that question, not expecting a specific answer because most people know the generic answers. Yeah. Typically, um, heart disease is number one. Uh, I'm actually going to pull this up right now.
0: Um, well, I know number three on there is a shocker when I read it because I did look these up a while ago and I was like, oh, wow.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, there. So, depending on which uh, graph you look at and whether they want to use this as a stat or not, medical errors is often like number three or number four.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. All, All right, Chris. So this one. is from the CDC. So we've got yeah. heart disease number one, cancer number two, lower respiratory disease number three, which is, uh, we'll jump into a little bit as far as the uh, coronavirus things going on. Uh, we got stroke is number four, unintentional injuries number five, Alzheimer's six, diabetes seven, pneumonia and influenza eight, kidney disease nine, suicide 10. Okay. Gotcha. So every single one of those is preventable. to a certain extent so include so the obvious one so heart disease obviously preventable most cancers obviously preventable because when we look at the cancers that are killing people, it's very rarely kind of the random freak prostate cancer. It's a lot more so like the lung cancer from smoking your entire life or the colon cancer from eating like shit your entire life. So most of the cancers themselves that are killing you are the ones that have a huge preventative aspect to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lower respiratory diseases. Well, having any type of cardiovascular health is a pretty big uh, preventative of against that same with stroke um unintentional injuries so this is a really interesting one and that kind of goes with the suicide thing is that when life sucks either you want to there's a tendency to want to end it all or you engage in riskier behaviors right so Mental health is something that really is not in our, it's, it's not a foundational part of our healthcare system. It's not a foundational part of our education system. So we'll get into that as far as rebuilding from scratch is concerned. Um, diabetes, obviously very preventable. Pneumonia and influenza, a lot of things we can do to ramp up our immune system that no one likes to talk about. Kidney disease, obviously preventable nutritionally. So top 10 leading causes of death, 100% preventable. Right. What is our? Who are the best equipped people in society to deal with these things? And it's yeah. not our healthcare professionals.
0: Yeah, I agree. So our frontline
1: healthcare professionals are not the best equipped people to deal with any of these problems.
0: Right. Yeah, they so don't learn. Kind of the, that they is a fundamental learn. problem. Yeah, and I think you just hit the fundamental one of the fundamental deep layered problems is like, you know, and even. Just to backtrack in terms of defining first principles, you know, they're basic assumptions that can't be deduced any further. So if you look at the statistics of what is killing us, that's a pretty good basic assumption that we can look at and be like, okay, well we have data which shows us what's killing people. So if we're talking about healthcare, if we're talking about true healthcare where we want to make people healthy, well, I think one of the goals is to mitigate death. And if all the causes of death are preventable based on lifestyle, then clearly we need to, focus on lifestyle as a piece of the education to both pros and to the public. And, you know, I think if you boil things down to the most fundamental truths, you know, what, what are we sure is true? And then build everything on top. Because I think Absolutely. too often we, you know, we create by analogy, we do permutations on existing systems, but the system is so far off track, you need to really boil things down to like, okay, what do we know is true? And I think one of my biggest first principles when it comes to health that I like to say when I have a conversation with someone because if they don't agree with that, then we fundamentally disagree on the root of everything we're going we potentially talk about is that the individual must take primary responsibility for their health. Yes. Now, I think there's a second layer to that, which says that they need to be, you know, the word responsibility breaking down to response able, they need to be put in a position where they are able to respond, right? So it's not just, oh, You need to take responsibility for your health. Go for it. It's like, I see the tools to be able to take care of your health. You need the, you need even the awareness. Like if you don't even have an awareness of what the hell is causing you the problems, you need awareness and you need tools. And I think that's where pros come in. But at the end of the day, you know, the individual needs to take primary responsibility. And if the system is not engineered around that base premise, I don't think we can have a sustainable system.
1: Well, we don't have a
0: sustainable
1: system. Right, right. So we're all, we're already seeing the the impact of that.
0: Yeah, and I think even another first principle that that comes to mind is you know this this fact that 99 per, 99.9% of cases the body functions perfectly and heals itself if we create the right conditions for it. Right? Yes. If we align our behavior with our biology, the body works really well. And I think part of the current system takes this fundamental premise that there is the body is inherently flawed and we are required to fix it when it breaks and it's inevitably going to break. And I think that base premise is just flawed and it makes makes you feel really good about your expensive degree, but I don't think that aligns with reality.
1: Yeah, because it doesn't align with reality. (laughs) So some of the really obvious fundamental, so some of the really obvious things like we have back pain because we're living longer, like just ideas like that, that have been Mm -hmm. debunked so many times that like, just by changing infant mortality rates, we change the average age of death. That doesn't mean that some people were just randomly dropping dead at 40 years old from like, I lived a long life. <laughs> so there's yeah. all these fundamental ideas around how we, were, how we were in the past and how we are now that just aren't true that are part of the foundation of our current healthcare system that we need to clean up.
0: Right. Yeah. And so...
1: We've got our first principles of um, death. Okay. Let's look at our first principles of disability. Okay. Number one, low back pain. Number two, headaches. Three, diabetes. Number four, drug use. Number five, depression. Six, COPD. Seven, anxiety. Eight, neck pain. Nine, other musculoskeletal or musculoskeletal issues, depending on which side of the border you're listening from. And number 10, age related hearing loss. Okay. So let's talk about a couple of those. Number one, number eight, number nine. Low, actually, num, we'll go even number two in there. So low back pain, headaches, neck pain, other musculoskeletal, musculoskeletal injuries. <laughs> How well equipped is the current healthcare system um, to deal with those things?
0: Not very. Right? Terrible. And, the thing yeah, is
1: absolutely terrible.
0: And here's the problem. People misinterpret deal with those things. Right. When yes. we, I assume that when you say deal with them, you mean eliminate them, right. Mm-hmm. Get rid of the pain. And it's hilarious that the number, like literally number one is a symptom. We mm-hmm. love put like Greg Cook has this great quote where it's like low back pain, isn't a diagnosis. It's a symptom. How the hell do we start confusing those two things? Yep. And Absolutely. I think, you know, deal with meaning get rid of them for good. I think most people would say, oh, we're great at dealing with back pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we're not good at eliminating back pain, so we need right. to differentiate—like, eliminate and deal with the root cause versus manage the symptoms and keep people like eliminate pain for short, transient periods of time because that's what people seem to think we're good at. But that's not even the goal.
1: Yeah. Do you guys have um, ICD nine codes up there, or ICD nine ICD ten? Does that mean anything uh- to you?
0: That means nothing to me, but I might not be the best person to ask because the practice that I worked at, we were, um, we didn't, I didn't deal with insurance at all. People just paid and then they went and got reimbursed by their insurance on their own doing. So we didn't do, okay. deal with any codes or anything. Cool.
1: So I do the same thing, but through my chiropractic education, um, I was well trained in insurance stuff. Gotcha. So. There's two systems of codes that you that we work with in the U.S. Okay, so number one is the ICD nine ICD ten ICD ten now uh, diagnosis codes. So they're basically a there's this massive like multi thousand page book that has every disease and symptom you could imagine has a specific code. All right. (laughs) Wow. There's a different book called the CPT book which is the current procedural terminology so these are the the basically the treatments so you have the diagnosis book and you have the treatment book hmm. okay so in the diagnosis book low back pain is a diagnosis interesting <laughs> so you might have low back pain is a diagnosis you might have facet Compression is a diagnosis. You might have a certain type of disc injury is a diagnosis. And the way the system is currently set up is that X diagnosis equals Y treatment.
0: Gotcha. Does
1: that make sense? Yep. And so a lot of these things that you say they aren't actually diagnoses, well, our current system is set up so they are.
0: Gotcha. So that's that's yeah, and that's kind of seems like a really powerful root cause of just how if we if we don't question the base assumptions and we attempt to find solutions without questioning the flawed assumptions, obviously we're never going to get anywhere good. Yeah, absolutely. I think you bring up a great point where it's like if the book that we're basing everything on is part of the problem, that part of the problem needs to be addressed.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Interesting. Couldn't agree more.
1: Yeah. So. We have a bunch of things that are causing people to die that our current system is totally inequipped to be able to deal with. And we have a bunch of things causing disability that our current system is totally unequipped to deal with. (laughs) Right. So So that's that's not a good start. (laughs) So well, that is, yeah, that's not a good start for our healthcare system being efficient, but it is a good start to know how to start to address these things.
0: Yes, I agree. And I, I really feel that every single um, problem, the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. And I yeah. think we have a ginormous problem in the world of health. And it has created a ginormous opportunity for, you know, the bar is really low. So it doesn't take much to raise it. But I think you can get s- orders of magnitude scale increase in, a- in health efficiency by just rethinking some of these base assumptions. And I think those two points you brought up are great places to start because it's like, okay, what are the problems and how equipped are we to deal with them? And if there's a massive incongruency there, then all right, that's problem number one that we need to solve. And I think you'd probably agree that professional education is essentially the root cause of this problem. You know, how pros are trained. If how pros are trained is completely out of alignment with what pros are seeing and what problems pros need to solve then that's, that's the start, basically.
1: Well, even, not even. So part of my solution is that the pro that we're using for certain scenarios is the wrong professional.
0: Ah, good point.
1: So right now, our system is set. So here's an example, okay? So I was sharing this this with a patient the other day, and the patient's like, that's exactly what happened to me with my knee. So here's the situation. Patients need, Patient wakes up, knee hurts a lot. They go to their primary care physician, okay? Primary care physician says, take these drugs, let the inflammation go down. Uh, if it doesn't after a while, come back and see me. So she does that for a couple of weeks, goes back to the GP. GP is like, okay, I don't really know what's going on. Let me get imaging. So they get x-rays, they get MRIs, things are fine, okay? They're like, okay, don't know what to do here, sent to PT." All right. PT does the kind of traditional muscle stim ultrasound, no actual movement, just passive care. PT. (laughs) Okay. PT doesn't work.
0: Should be empty modality Uh, therapy.
1: Yes. So now PT doesn't work. So they go back to the GP. GP says, okay, we need a specialist. Now the person goes to the orthopedic surgeon. Orthopedic surgeon says, your MRIs are clear. There's nothing for me to do. Um, I would say maybe just work out, but take it easy. So now they go to the personal trainer. Personal trainer is like, why didn't you tell me this three months ago? Like, I've I've got exercises for this. Like, I can help you with this. So a few weeks of working with the personal trainer with a slightly different approach fixes the entire problem. Yeah. So in this situation the best equipped person to help them with getting their need to move better was the personal trainer, who, if we look at it in the grand scheme of things, has the lower hourly rate of every single person that they saw on this list. Right. And this was what happened last. Yeah. So we have GP at a pretty high hourly rate. We have x-ray imaging tech at a pretty high rate. We have the radiologist that read the films at an extremely high rate. We have the orthopedic surgeon at a pretty high rate. We have the PT who's at a much, is probably at a higher rate than the personal trainer.
0: And And the MRI, don't forget that. That's a Sorry? And the MRI too, that's a big one.
1: Yeah, for sure. So we have all these things that are ridiculously expensive that were done First, as opposed to, okay, what is the cheapest option? Who is the best equipped to deal with it?
0: Right. So the triaging system was broken.
1: Yeah, it's backwards. It's only backwards.
0: Yeah. So and why do you I, think that is? Like, why, where's the disconnect from um, the GP? Cause I think we'd probably, you know, does, do you feel that the GP should still be the primary kickoff point to then determine the, the appropriate path?
1: Absolutely not. So the way I I think the system should be set up is the first line of defense should be the cheapest, least educated person who's trained in that problem. So let me give you an example when it comes to movement. Okay. So you have low back pain. First line of defense for that should be the kinesiology graduate personal trainer.
0: Yep, I agree. Because
1: that person has a good amount of education on how to move the body. Mm -hmm. So, and that person compared to the physical therapist, compared to the MD, compared to the specialist MD, um, is gonna be a whole lot cheaper and probably a whole lot more effective. Train that person really well to know what are the things that are outside of their scope of practice. Really train that person extremely well in the kind of the yellow flags and the red flags. Yep. If there are red flags or if there's yellow flags, they work through them for a little bit. If they hit a wall, they refer up to the next level.
0: Along with all the data gained by working with that kinesiologist, because even if they can't solve the problem, you know, they can probably make significant improvements through using movement as a modality. And more importantly, through using education as a modality to make sure that that patient, that person knows, okay, well, here are the things that we know contribute to back pain. Here are things, you know, assuming that we've ruled out red flags um, and are mindful of yellow flags, here are things that we can do that carry a low risk, yet a high potential for reward, which like you said, coming from the kinesiologist or movement pro, are very low in cost, are very low in burden to the medical system, and yet are the highest effectiveness um, in terms of being able to solve the problem when you look at things. So Absolutely. that's a great point.
1: So that's level one. Level two might be the level of trained manual therapist. So maybe we now get into like the massage therapist. So maybe just a little bit of a generic hands-on work gets them to the next level. Right. Next level from that. The highly specialized movement specialist. So that's where your chiropractor, your physical therapist comes in.
0: And I'd be really, I'd be, I'd be really interested to see, you know, the percentage of low back pain. And you know, as an aside to this, if we had a way for movement pros to be able to be essentially graded based on their effectiveness in some way, shape, or form by the patient. So patient X goes to see um movement pro y then says wow i got rid of my back pain or i got a better understanding to the point where i had really low symptoms and felt that i had control over this problem in four visits mm-hmm. if there's a way for for movement pro y to be able to have almost like a rating system quote unquote to show who is the best equipped to deal with these things who has had the best result has a history of the best results like, I think there's no barometer um, that rewards effectiveness. And I think that's this key part of the problem where if we. Well, I'm, I'm going to
1: agree and disagree with you on that. So, okay. there is no barometer in the health insurance system to deal with that. There right. is a barometer in the free market to deal
0: with that. Yes. Word of mouth?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and cash. And so, a. Charlie Weingroff in New York City can charge four or five hundred bucks an assessment because he's built up a reputation that you spend an hour or two with him, he will find the answer quickly. Um, You go to Craig Liebenson in LA, it's going to be the same type of thing. So the free market has dictated a certain level of skill and expertise gets rewarded. But the way our current insurance system is in play implies that every professional service is an equal commodity. Right. And so, in, so basically, no matter what country you're in, if there is kind of a insurance model at play, what we are saying is the physical therapist who got out of school yesterday and the physical therapist who's got 30 years of experience deliver the exact same product because we're reimbursing them at the same level.
0: Right. So it's really, yeah. When you put insurance in there, it it takes away the market forces that automatically incentivize effectiveness and reimbursement for outcome. Correct. Yeah.
1: So imagine I go to the car dealership and I say, I've got $40,000 to spend and they just basically shake they they have a bucket and they put every single car on the planet in that bucket and they shake them all up. And whatever I draw out of the bucket is what I get. I might get a brand new Tesla. I might get a beat up 1995 Honda civic. We don't know, but I'm paying the exact same amount. And that is the state of our healthcare system.
0: Right. And even sometimes the dealership is incentivized to give you the shittiest car for $40,000 or give you the, the least amount of service and effort required in order to extract those resources, which is this, you know, this weird thing that we've just allowed in the system. And, you know, people will say, Oh, it's such a big system. Like it's hard to change. It's like, yeah, but it's worth working and putting in the effort to change it because it's a really big, there's a shitload of suffering happening because of something we're not willing to kind of have honest conversations about and, and innovate solutions beyond just changing little things here and there
1: hmm So recently I've been nerding out on the, uh, the Versailles TV show on Netflix. And okay. it makes me think of things like the French Revolution. So if you want to talk about a system that was in place for a really long time that had a lot of momentum and would have been really hard to reverse, it was the fucking monarchy, okay? Um, <laughs> so if somehow humans found a way to look at that system and be like, this isn't working for us. We need something different. If we can do it with something with something that's, that's been as deep ingrained as that, we can do it with healthcare.
0: Yeah, I agree. Because everyone's on our side, right? Like the pros want to have, want to be more effective. The people, yeah. the public wants to not be in pain. You know, I think the the people who are currently benefiting the most from the current system are the people that are creating the friction, which seems to hold a higher degree of, um, you know, power than all of the other people. And I think part of it is just the other people don't know that something can be done. Yep. Right. It's like when you're in the, the, when you're on the Ferris wheel, it's hard to get clarity of how you can fix the Ferris wheel.
1: Yeah, and, absolutely.
0: And I think that's, you know, these, I think this medium, this podcast medium creates a, a place for conversation to, for important conversations to happen and for more ears to hear these conversations. Absolutely. Um, you know, and even if it's not saying solutions that can be in, put in place and are perfect, but at least talking about the potential for solutions that are possible, because we're, you know, I think the, the magnifying glass has been put on health as a whole with this, you know, today is May 2nd, we're still in the midst of this corona pandemic. And I think people are realizing that like, wow, the virus itself is a thing. But my health is the biggest determinant of whether or not that thing is a massive threat to me or is not a threat to me.
1: Yes. So I've definitely observed that how my healthy, pe- healthy uh, colleagues are dealing with coronavirus and are stressed about coronavirus is very different from unhealthy people that I might come across in just day-to-day life. Right. And the healthier people realize that there is a step between being exposed to a pathogen and me getting the disease and overrun by the pathogen. And that step in between is called your health.
0: Yeah. And, and your
1: health is the filter that allows that pathogen to thrive or not thrive.
0: Yeah, and the the issue is is people wait until the pathogen comes to focus on something they should have been focusing on all along, and that takes time in order to to build. Like you don't, you can't. Like you can do a lot to work on your health when something happens, but to be truly resilient takes a lot of time, takes a lot of practice, and we shouldn't. You know, the analogy of you don't build an aircraft carrier when the war starts; you build it way in advance so it's there and ready when the shit hits the fan, because you don't know when that's going to be. Yep. And I think we've just taken this, you know, we're wired for short term thinking, we just think tomorrow, we don't think a week from now, or a month from now, or like a lifetime, it's just beyond the scale of what I think our typical wired time timeframe, um, in terms of what we focus on is for humans. And And it's just this weird thing that we don't talk about. It's like, your health is important every day, not just in times of emergency. And hopefully this situation has kind of created because I, I feel like we're, you know, it's not it, things are never black and white, right? There's always a lot of gray. And I think this this quote unquote health revolution has kind of started and been happening um for a while. You know, if you're looking for it, you see it. Or yep. if you're in the weeds, you see it. But, you know, my hope is that this whole thing cause it can either go in two directions. Either we can be distracted by this thing, by all all the voices that are trying to find a platform to speak, whether that's good healthy information or not healthy information or we can use it as being like oh shit yeah let's do this let's let's like speed and speed up and catalyze this health revolution that's been simmering but hasn't really gotten the final push um so i hope it's the second one
1: yeah definitely so let's go back to our rebuilding from scratch yep so we had so in our back pain example we talked about Let's start with the most skilled, least cost person, train them in the yellow and the red flags at their level. Mm -hmm. And if it's something that's outside of their scope, they go up to the next level. So we have the well-trained personal trainer level one. We have generic manual therapist number two. We have the chiropractor, physical therapist, highly skilled movement expert level three. Maybe after that, GP is level four.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: So at that point, it's like, okay, we've now dealt with your movement really, really well and really, really deeply. And we know that we've trained everyone at the bottom levels to know with certain red flags, they should have been sent directly to level four, level five, whatever. And so we train people it's like, okay, yeah, you've got back pain and you've lost some bowel and bladder function. Boom, straight to GP. Right. Like we can train people to identify that. That's not that hard. No. Um, so we've done all of these lower cost things. We're now at the level of GP. GP might find there are certain things in their blood work that's keeping their inflammation higher than it should be or what have you. Okay. So then it might be they take the medical route to put out some fires. Then it might be, let's go to the next level, which might be advanced imaging.
0: Mm-hmm
1: then it would be, let's go to like the specialist.
0: Right. A much more, that hierarchical system makes way more sense from a cost burden standpoint, but also more importantly, from an effectiveness standpoint.
1: Absolutely. So it's going to be way more effective. It's going to be way cheaper. It's going to be way faster. There's no, the down, the quote unquote downside is that the higher level people aren't seeing as many people. So it ends up being that we would need to rebuild the system so that the specialists are running way lower volume.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And also the scarcity of those services is all of a sudden lower. So maybe the price, because we don't need the same volume of higher level specialists, maybe the price of education and the demand for getting into those schools isn't as high, right? Because market forces would say that that should be the case.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: And I would even, you know, as a sub layer to even entering that pipeline of needing to see professionals, I think a key part of a truly sustainable healthcare system is figuring out how do we get some base heuristics, like validated science-based heuristics Mm -hmm. to the public and make it available to them with low friction and without it requiring a high level of of, uh, of cost, right? Like, if we make a free, a powerful free tool available to the public as public education, I mean, really, this should be taught in school. Like, what better thing to learn about in high school than your health? What is more applicable for the rest of your life than health? You know, like, I don't need to use algebra anymore, but I should probably know how to be a healthy, functioning human so that I don't burden the system, and I think we need to create some sort of, like what happened to the public edu- public service announcements. You know, like I don't see shit in terms of awareness by governments as public services announcements, which used to be a thing, but they've kind of seemingly disappeared despite the fact that everyone has a media outlet in their pocket at all times. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be great if government of Canada in my situation had sponsored Instagram ads that said, Hey, back pain is preventable here are the common causes here are things you can do like that would be a powerful tool to just even eliminate a high volume of people having to go into that pipeline
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely
0: and that's not that hard to do
1: nope would not be hard to do at all
0: so Um, it just seems it sometimes you take a step back you're like is anyone else seeing this like what what is (laughs) going what did we miss here what is going on (laughs)
1: So again, it's one of those things where this, it's just been this way for so long that right. people just assume that it's inevitable that it has to be this way into the future. Yeah. And that's just not true. Right. So you mentioned education. So right now, I've only talked about rebuilding the healthcare system itself, but it really starts way, way, way younger. And so if we go back to kindergarten and we look at, just education from the ground up, what are the things that we are teaching, what are the things we prioritize, how much time are we spending on those things?
0: Yeah. Because it really has to be like a multi a multi front assault on okay, we have we have educate, we have the, cause I think it's like, okay, let's look at system elements. So if we're talking mm-hmm. about a healthcare system, what are the individual elements? Element number one is you have the public, you have pe- humans. Yeah. You've got the patient. <laughs> you have the patient, you have, and, and along with that patient education, mm-hmm. and then you have the pros and pro education. Yep. So those are kind of like the fundamental puzzle pieces that then get put into this machine that figures out how to align those pieces in the most efficient way, but you're right. I think when it comes to public and the public education, it starts like, yeah, like you just expanded my, fr- my frame of what education means. Cause I was like, okay, a high school or, or education as adults, but like, you're right. It starts with instilling the right value. Like health culture change starts when kids are young. Yes. And right now we just have this, you know, Media perpetuated, consumerism perpetuated set of junk values that we just seemingly don't care to change and yet could immediately change with the next generation growing up, right? Where fundamentally you don't have to tell kids not to be on their phones all day. They know that being on their phones all day is not good for them, right? They don't smash their fingers with hammers because they know that that's not good for them. So, how do we change the value structure taught from a very young age to help? kids be more independent and self responsible with understanding the true risks. Because, you know, climbing monkey bars or climbing a tree is seen as a bigger risk than being having being glued to a cell phone all day long. And the reality and the truth just doesn't align with that. So how do we, you know, we need to change that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it start again, it goes back to the first principles of what's likely to cause disability, what's likely to cause death and make sure that we build our system around that. Mm -hmm. So let's jump back to the origins of education. Right now, the goal is not to train people to be cogs in the wheel of the industrial revolution.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And yet that's still the system in place.
1: Yeah. So from ringing bells at a certain time. Like it's, that's, the whole sy- that's the whole foundation of the system. So right now, our, if we look at how much math do we need, how much science do we need, how much health education do we need, how much phys ed do we need, if we, again, just rebuild it from the idea of what is our society going to need, let's start with that. Right. So at our fundamental level, there is... A fundamental level of just shapes, colors, letters, all that stuff, like, that stays the same. Right. When it starts to get into how deep do we need to go down the math rabbit hole, I think by time you get to pretty basic algebra, like, it should end there.
0: Well yeah, like we have supercomputers in our pockets now. Like you yeah. don't you don't need to <laughs> to know how to do advanced addition or subtraction or division when like you're probably not like simple math, yes, very valuable. You're stranded in the woods, you should be able to read a compass, do basic math, triangulation, whatever. Yeah. But you're right. I think we just we've put too much of an emphasis on on this some of the stems, right? Mm-hmm. On on math especially when and don't get me wrong, if you want to be a computer scientist, mm-hmm. then the option to dig deeper into math should be available to you. Yeah, for sure. But to force kids to learn things that give them virtually no value beyond the po- period of schooling. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's something to be said with putting things in front of kids and having them learn things with the mindset that really what they should be learning is how to learn, not how to memorize.
1: And this goes back to uh, Harari's work in that when we transition from information scarcity to information abundance, your ability to learn becomes really important. And when we have a society that is so dramatically changing in that, every 10 to 15 years, everything is totally different. Your ability (laughs) to reinvent yourself professionally becomes absolutely paramount. So let's say you're a marketer, okay? You graduated with a marketing degree in 2005, okay? What were you taught in school about what mediums to use for marketing?
0: Right, print media.
1: (laughs) Yeah, okay the main sources of media right now did not exist when that person (laughs) graduated from school. I agree. So Instagram, Facebook, like all of these ad avenues um, just didn't exist. Where people consume their information didn't exist.
0: Exactly. So it's, you know, the asset is not learning a fixed, set of information about how to navigate the current media type it's how to be resourceful enough to know where to go to get the information to learn about the new media sources because you're right like we live in a world now that completely turns itself over on a much more frequent cycle length than ever before and i don't see that slowing down so it's people need to be taught how to be resourceful and how to essentially filter, they have to be taught how to develop a really strong filter. Yep. And I would argue that one of the most important things today that's not being taught is how to fight distraction because so many, like we live in a world of distraction where attention is a commodity and it's very highly valued and there's billions of dollars and some of the smartest behavioral designers in the world Mm -hmm. working on stealing our attention. And I think you know one of the things we should learn in school is how to protect ourselves mm-hmm. and now we need to protect ourselves from people trying to steal our attention and yep. and you can't actually be resourceful or learn effectively if you can't even focus on something for more than 10 minutes yeah and this this is something very new right like like mm-hmm. school curriculums are are just freight trains just well any i i would argue that any large institutionalized curriculum is a freight train that is hard, has so much momentum that apart from mild changes in certain elements of it, um, it just, it, it's not prepared to deal with these massive cultural frameships that are happening way more frequently than they ever used to. So we need to, we need to create a dynamic, a much more dynamic system um, both in the way, you know, this whole thing about textbooks is like those should be in museums now. And yeah, I mean, You're seeing that more and more where kids are learning on iPads, but, um, you know, I still learned from textbooks in physio school and they were outdated when I learned from them, let alone probably two years after they were written. So why the heck is that still the standard?
1: Yeah, exactly. Like by time it gets to textbook, it's already like, like even before we had (laughs) the speed of increasing information, textbooks were outdated by time they came into print. Right. Now it's even worse, obviously.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it, yeah, it is literally crazy. Because if it right. takes you two years to write a textbook in, in, a, in an industry like health, which is accelerating in its turnover of, you know, new developments, new research, new information, mm-hmm. um, textbooks should be outdated, really. Yeah. Textbooks, gone. Get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: All right. So back to education. All right. Okay. So we talked about the math thing. There are certain fundamentals of math that you require to be a functioning human. Yes. So you're getting a mortgage. You need to understand the principles of interest rates. Like ba- there's some basic math things you need to know.
0: Which probably, um, which isn't even being taught. Like personal finance to achieve financial health yeah, is a seriously overlooked topic. Like that's a beautiful, actual, like, um, useful application of math. Like mm-hmm. if we taught math in the context of these are basic things that you're going to need to navigate as an adult in real life. Like you're going to have to make money. You're going to have to. You're going to have to know the fundamentals of of being able to be a financially healthy person that is comfortable and independent with, you know, not going broke and not stressing over over money so here's a here's a tangible application in math that is useful that also teaches you the fundamentals of math because that was not something i was ever exposed to and you know like just teaching the basics of this is how credit cards work like yep. no one has taught that so it's not really that much of a surprise that people screw it up
1: mm-hmm. absolutely so we've got our math piece okay let's yep. go to the next one my favorite one the history piece yes how much memorizing of historical facts should be part of our curriculum right now? Fucking nothing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Because
1: every I mean, single it's... historical fact is we all have a supercomputer super that makes that answer less than a second away.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. So the memory, sorry, I was misinterpreting history is not important for it. memorization of history is not important. I, I agree that memorizing
1: understanding of history is incredibly
0: important. I agree. Yep. So
1: make history class, not about memorizing the facts, but understanding what happened.
0: Right. Because making kids memorize shit is inherently silly. Yeah. Because, Absolutely. because kids don't even like, it. well, I mean, it depends how deep you want to go into this because the fact that we make kids adopt a position, a sedentary position all day and expect their brains to work at an optimal level in and of itself is so silly mm-hmm. and outdated, mm-hmm. but to make, to try and get kids to jam information and retain it, that is you know likely uninteresting for the bulk of them based on the way it's taught and the content that's being delivered. To think that that would work ever is so silly, (laughs) let alone something that's done as essentially the gold standard in education still. It's so whack.
1: Yeah. So the thing is, back in the day, if the goal was just to teach you how to memorize things for a life where you were were going to be sitting down and doing the same repetitive movement over and over again, it makes sense.
0: Right. And if you didn't have a phone in your pocket that had access to unlimited information, it made sense to try and get stuff into your brain that you might not come across again, or would be hard to come across again. So you're right. It did. It served a purpose at some point. But, you know, I don't know where that threshold was when it lost its value, but it wasn't yesterday.
1: Yeah, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) So we have, sorry, I'm pulling up like what the, uh, common um all right so um the elementary the fundamental uh things in elementary school so we've got math science social studies language arts music art reading right okay notice what was missing health yes (laughs) the the most (laughs) important the
0: most important life skill for the rest of your life and i think it can be Like, I think the topic of health can be trickled into a lot of those other elements. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it's not even on the radar is a really big problem. And I think that that's because I think if we focused on getting kids to be good thinkers Mm -hmm. and we percolated the topic of health in various, you know, with regard to various pillars and in various ways into the curriculum, we would result in you know, young adults that are better prepared to filter through bullshit if they were taught beyond, you know, if you want to be a health professional and you have a basic understanding of health, well, you can hit the ground running in a big way Mm -hmm. when you start to do professional level education.
1: Mm -hmm. Like if you you were, so let's talk about something really, really simple. Something that you could teach at a very, very, very young level. Okay. Right. Cars. Yep. Control particular rotations that when you don't move a joint through its full range of motion, it gets shitty. You can teach that to a small child, and they get it. Right. Like, that's, that wouldn't be hard. <laughs> so no. if that was being drilled into people every year of their life, from kindergarten to 12th grade, they're foundationally <laughs> are in such better shape than yeah. our average 12th grade graduate right now.
0: Right, like the amount of high school kids that I treated in clinic made my heart hurt because I was like, why the hell is this kid, you know, all these non-contact injuries yeah. that are happening. Mm-hmm. And even, I agree, cars as a tool mm-hmm. are insanely powerful. It's a, it's a life skill. Like it is yeah. not, this isn't just like a transient piece of information that helps you like while you're in high school. This, ha- this is a life skill. But yeah. even before that, I remember teaching like a, an eight-year-old the concept of the said principle. Mm-hmm. And, and he understood it. And I don't think this kid was like the next savant, but he was like, oh, so if I don't use this muscle, the muscle gets weak. Okay. I understand that. And Mm -hmm. if we taught that and we had, we had that baseline, you know, software installed at a young age Mm -hmm. that increases your confidence and your ability to troubleshoot basic issues Mm -hmm. to a massive, massive extent. Right yep. Where you're like, oh, my hip feels stiff or this hurts. Hmm, Maybe it's because I haven't been using it. Maybe yep. it's because I need to use it more. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I know these cars that we learned and we made a game out of it. When I, in, you know, when in I was in first
1: grade. grade. <laughs>
0: yeah, in the first grade, we played the car game. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Yep. Um,
1: so with that, you, the general principles of opening versus closing angle pain. That'd be very easy to teach.
0: Right. And the it's principles
1: not... of muscle pain versus nerve pain. Very easy to teach.
0: Yeah, we don't think kids are we we give way less credit to how intelligent kids are if you give mm-hmm. them information in the right way. Yeah. They're really smart. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. So if a foundational part of our education system becomes teaching very, very foundational principles of movement. Mm -hmm. We've now functionally eliminated some of the leading causes of death and disability.
0: Yeah. You eliminate back pain.
1: Yeah. So not, not just back pain. So let's go back to the list. Um, where are we at? Back pain, number one, neck pain, number eight, other musculoskeletal number nine. Yeah. If by knowing how to move their body, they move their bodies more and they maintain their body ma- their like body fat levels better. well, that now has trickle down effects into like heart disease and diabetes and respiratory disease and things like that
0: well, just a basic understanding of food like we, so we started teaching. Oh, don't,
1: don't get me started on that. Like, yeah, so we're only (laughs) talking about movement so far. We have, okay, so
0: let's go back to, I'm going to jump around on you a little bit. That's okay. I like, and just to sneak something in there. Yeah, I have this theory where if we, you know, people like, okay, yeah, we can teach kids, but we have the biggest problem right now is not with kids. It's in adults. I'm like, yeah, Mm -hmm. but where do the kids go at the end of the day? They go home. Mm -hmm. They can literally, you could teach a generation of kids Mm -hmm. to educate and essentially help their parents fix themselves by just gaining <laughs> this basic understanding. It's like the parent doesn't have to do the kid's homework, uh, math homework with them. The kid can literally do their movement homework with their parents and make their parents better. Like, it's a really powerful solution if you actually implement it with full effort.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay,
0: All so right, where so- are we going to go,
1: Yeah, so I wanted to jump back into my adult with low back pain and kind of the first provider being the kinesiology grad personal trainer. Okay, so let's look, let's go back to those leading cause of death, leading cause of disability. We have the movement specialist is pretty well geared to help with a lot of these things. Okay, Mm -hmm. let's look at, we have... I'm going to go the mental health route, okay? Okay. So, on the disability list, number four, drug use. Number five, depression. Number seven, anxiety. If we go to the death side of things, we have number five, unintentional injuries. Number 10, suicide. So, mental health, obviously, is a really big deal, causing a lot of death, causing a lot of disability.
0: Yeah, it's 25% of those, you know, those two lists make up 20, the big 20, 25% of the big 20 that you just named off, five of them are are mental health. Yep. Yeah. All right. The so, thing about mental health is that we don't touch it until it's a catastrophe.
1: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but, well, I mean, that's not that different from physical health, let's be real. But it's, it's this weird, it's this crazy thing that we've just not seeing the obvious things right in front of our faces mm-hmm. yeah so how do we integrate mental health into what are the, what are the the kiddie versions of mental health education for kids
1: so i have a really good friend who's a uh, mental health professional uh she is a uh trained uh psychotherapist okay. and she works with kids and she has this amazing analogy so she has a couple of amazing analogies that she uses with kids. One of them she shared with me and I now use this analogy with my adult patients. Nice. <laughs> so it's that when you feel a certain way about something, so let's say you get angry or let's say you, or just whatever emotion happens. Once the emotion is there, it can take a while to settle in. So mm-hmm. let's, so she has basically this container this like Mason jar with like water and confetti and like glitter and like all sorts of random stuff in the mason jar. Okay. And she shakes up the mason jar and she's like, you see all the chaos in here. That's you being angry. (laughs) And the only once I've shaken it up, it takes time for it to to all settle. settle down. Yep. And that anger only goes away once it's all settled down. And if you continue to think about the thing that's making you angry, that's like you just shaking it up again. So now you're starting over. Mm -hmm. So you need to learn that once the jar is shaken up, it's like, oh, I'm angry now. It's going to be there for a while. I just need to sit in this. Yep. So she teaches like kindergarten kids this and they (laughs) get 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 it. it. Okay. So that's one thing. The other thing is she will teach that there is a difference between events that happen in the world and how we perceive those, effect, those events and the story we make and what we make it mean.
0: Right. And the concept of neutrality, of everything being neutral until yep. you make a judgment on it. Yes. And that that judgment is actually within your control.
1: Exactly. She yeah. teaches that
0: to children. <laughs> This is making me really optimistic, by the way. I'm really, like, this is making me, this is making my heart warm hearing all these things because these are legit, simple, free solutions mm-hmm. that can solve a shitload of suffering.
1: Yep. Um, I work in a yoga studio. So I've got a lot of teachers who, uh, who work at the studio who are really passionate about kids. So they will go in and they will teach yoga classes to kids in elementary schools, and they will teach the principles of meditation. And they will teach kids to realize that they are not their thoughts.
0: Hmm. so
1: you've got small kids learning that, oh, my brain just makes random decisions. It just makes it just random things pop in there and they don't mean anything. They don't have to mean anything.
0: Right. And I don't have to act on them or think that I like they're they're just things. Yeah. Right. Like you can look at look at. Thoughts and emotions object- objectively, like these are the installation of very powerful health values, foundational health values of personal understanding and just and and I think it's it's it goes way deeper than just themselves because when they see another kid that's super angry, mm-hmm. they don't think, oh, I hate that kid, that's a bad kid. They're just like, oh their mason jar is really messed up right now. Exactly. exactly. I, I, wonder if, I wonder if they know what they need to do to calm the mason jar down. Exactly. Of being exactly. Like, oh, and then just, yeah, it's powerful. I wish I adults so. knew that shit. <laughs> sorry, was that? I said, I wish adults knew that shit because you'd have way less. Like the other day, I just, w- I don't know if it's because I'm looking for them, but sometimes I witness the dumbest confrontations and I just want to go out to people and give them a hug and be like, whatever's happening to you, I'm sorry that it's, that you're struggling, but like, we need to be nicer to each other because it's yeah. just, there's these shit storms that develop out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And if people just knew the jar analogy, if people just knew that everyone is suffering in their own respect, and we just, if you're nice, it solves a lot of the problems. We would just be in a better world.
1: Couldn't agree more, my friend couldn't agree more. Um, so we talked about movement at kind of a foundational grade school level, and yep. at a professional level. Okay. Let's talk about mental health. We talked about it at a foundational level. Let's talk about it as a professional level. Okay. Mm-hmm. The current mental health system is wait for catastrophes. Right. And then send them to the highest level expert.
0: And, mo- and, and oftentimes the bandaid is applied by that expert.
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. So let's look at a mental health hierarchy similar to what we saw with physical movement, okay? So have a portal of entry mental health professional. So think of this like the life coach, if you will, but it's more a, like...
0: The mind coach. Huh? Yeah. The mind coach.
1: Yeah, for sure. So in your primary care model, there is a movement person in in the primary care model, There is a mind coach in the primary care model, and there is a nutrition coach in the primary care model. Mm -hmm. So on the mind coach thing, we have someone who is trained, let's say they've got a undergrad psych degree, and they're just trained to teach people a little bit deeper things about their mind.
0: Yeah, and basic mental health, tools that people that are actionable and don't require a massively deep understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, you know, and I think fundamentally in all these first line um, courses, like this kinesiologist that comes out of university with an undergrad and -hmm. the equivalent with the mind and food. I -hmm. really think that a fundamental understanding of behavior design and how habits are built and broken. Mm -hmm. Isn't that hard of a thing to teach, like put tiny habits and put some of BJ Fogg's work, Mm-hmm. As a fundamental element of all these programs, and you all of a sudden have super weapons of helping people understand behavior so that people don't blame themselves for not doing something they should be doing or doing something they shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. They blame the design of how they're engineering their life, which is guiding them to the wrong behaviors. So I just that was something i, I I've learned about it now. And if we had these first line people understand behavior design just a little bit, not like experts, but just a little bit, I think it, it significantly magnifies their effectiveness at that base level, uh, at that entry point into the pipeline of, of looking for help.
1: Well, I think waiting for them to do it is too late. I think we can do that at the grade school level.
0: Yeah. You're, oh, dude. Yeah, that's so true.
1: <laughs> so, so going back to let's ha- how do we rebuild our educational curriculum? So in part of the health triad, okay, through grade school and high school, make the movement piece a big chunk. So yeah. hour a day, the movement piece is part of your education. That doesn't change.
0: And trickle movement into everything else so that we have a more movement-rich environment. Yeah, sure. In all the other stuff, yeah. Cool
1: okay make nutrition a foundational piece through the multiple levels yep make mental health a foundation we'll we'll say mental health a foundational piece through all the levels and we'll say we'll call it like thinking Mm -hmm. we'll call it (laughs) yes so like the fundamentals of habits the fundamentals of logic the um understanding um human biases uh the basics of system one, system two, um, learning about game theory, learning about first principles, if I didn't touch on that already. So right. these are things that are foundational to how we process information that you can teach at a young age.
0: Yep. I agree.
1: So we teach people those things systematically through grade school. Now the foundation that they have by time they get to needing that professional are totally different.
0: Yeah, I agree. And and the narratives that you use to teach these things or the stories that you tell kids at different ages might be different. Oh, for sure. But the underlying values, these like deeper meanings, whether kids realize that's a deeper meaning or not, are are like basically trickle into all of those levels. Yep. And it's consistent, I think consistency of the message, like think of how advanced a kid would be if they were exposed to that. And I'm sure there's, you know, I'm sure like Montessori or I don't know for a fact, but I'm sure there are schools Mm -hmm. like we're not the first people to talk about this. But I really think like I'm literally going to get someone on our team as a side note to fire this podcast to the health minister of Ontario as many times as possible. To see Mm -hmm. if they can get their ears on this. Because I don't know if they're even hearing this information.
1: Yeah. Uh, So yeah, part of it is, yeah, sometimes they don't know. So when I read, uh, I'm assuming you've read Spark, right?
0: Yeah, great book. John Raddy?
1: Yeah. So when I read Spark, I was like, holy shit, how did I know
0: this? (laughs) Yeah, I know, it's crazy. I'm
1: I'm a fucking doctor. Like, (laughs) I went to, I I started my kinesiology at UBC. Uh, I finished at U of S. Okay. And so these are strong programs. And then I went to chiropractic school. Okay. And so I've spent like, at this point, I had like well over a decade of advanced knowledge of movement. How the hell did I not know that by simply adding a little bit of daily aerobic exercise, your math and science scores would go through the roof? Like the information <laughs> is there. How did I not know that? That is right. a fundamental problem in the system. When I read um, just last year, uh, Why We Sleep, uh, Matthew Walker's book, that your immune response to a flu shot or a vaccination is totally different. Totally different (laughs) if you lose just an hour or two of sleep. How the hell did I not know that? (laughs) Right. But could we teach this to kids? Absolutely. Would not be hard.
0: I agree. And it, one of the footers in Australia brought up a great point. He's like, the other day I realized that, so he has a young kid and he's like, I realized that I do all these things for my kid mm-hmm. and I just forget to do them for myself. Like pre, So he, he realized it with the pre-sleep routine. He's like, I know how important it is for me to have a stable and consistent pre-sleep routine mm-hmm. with my kid. I think he has to go to bed at the same time. Mm-hmm. We do something before bed to get him like almost like a ritual, like reading a book or telling a story that gets him into the mindset of sleep. He's like, and then I go and do a bunch of bullshit that I know I shouldn't be doing, but I don't just think like, I just need to do what I do for my kid because it's the same requirement. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just this realization that we, these, these principles that apply to all ages are equally effective for all age categories. We just forget to use them. We think, oh, it's good for the, my kid, but I, I don't need that like actually you might yeah I agree sleep is like when I read Matthew Walker's book I it exploded my brain I instantly called my parents I'm like how how many hours a night do you sleep because I don't want to be taking care of my mother with dementia earlier like I don't want that to happen so how many hours do you sleep let's let's talk about your sleep because we've never talked about it before and I never actually knew it was important until now despite Mm -hmm. being a health professional Mm -hmm. and you're right like the really good gems from there can be instilled as core values that sleep matters Mm -hmm. and this whole like if we reverse the machismo with sleep where it's like it's you're not a hero if you sleep at all if you if you don't prioritize sleep you're a hero if you actually sleep
1: yeah so Uh, there is a certain degree of shaming that currently happens with obesity Um, whether that's a good thing or not. So if we look at obesity in terms of the health impact, there's a certain level of obesity that has definite negative health consequences. And we have a society that kind of shames that a little bit. And in my opinion, that isn't all bad. Shaming any level of appearance that isn't a Hollywood ideal is very bad. But shaming unhealthy behaviors, I'm okay with that. We kind of shame certain levels of alcoholism. We shame certain levels of drug use. We should kind of shame certain levels of sleep deprivation.
0: I agree. And what's your definition of shaming?
1: So we have a society that looks at it and says that is bad.
0: Yes, I agree. I think, yeah, because I think some people might misinterpret unnecessary, unnecessary or um, mean, meanness. I mean, even the word mean is kind of a loaded word, but like we shouldn't, we shouldn't promote unhealthy behaviors. Correct. So by that virtue, we should disincentivize or look poorly on behaviors that we know are unhealthy. Correct. And with some of them we currently do, but with a lot of them, we do not. I agree. And there's a difference between needlessly, you know, Berating someone yeah, yeah. for being obese. <laughs> <talking about> <laughs> yeah. And just being like, but the flip side of this, like the pendulum has shifted so hard that people are like, I am overweight and I am proud. It's like, mm-hmm. well, that doesn't mean it's okay. Yeah. That doesn't mean you should try and stay that way or. Mm-hmm find an echo chamber that everyone could say, oh, we're proud to be overweight. It's like, yep. no, that's not okay. You shouldn't yep. be needlessly shamed for it, but you should also understand that that's not, that's really unhealthy. Like you're going to have fewer quality years and you're going to have less years on your life. Yep. And you need to be aware of that, but you also need to be helped to understand some basic tools and awareness around how you can fix that problem. Yeah. Yeah, I Absolutely.
1: agree. Absolutely. And
0: it's Absolutely. almost like we we have to teach kids that... <clears throat> when someone is overweight, Mm -hmm. it's an opportunity to help them better understand maybe what is going on with creating that sense of being overweight with, you know, like if we turn kids into allies with each other, it's like, oh, it looks like, you know, if the kid looks at the overweight kid and says, Hey, what kind of stuff are you eating? Like, can we, like, I, I just think if we, if we instill these healthy values where you where helping others is a good thing, like you get social brownie points for helping others instead mm-hmm. of, you know, teasing others. Yeah. That creates a different dynamic.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree more, my friend. So we had our, our mental health revisions. We've got yeah. kind of our critical thinking revisions. We've mm-hmm. got our movement revisions. Um, nutrition, we haven't gone that deep into, but it's kind of the same principles of Teach found foundational, fundamental things at the grade school level, and make our healthcare system foundationally based on those things. Yep. So, something I want to talk about with uh, respect to healthcare and um, Holstead and being the coke addict and all that fun stuff. Um, and <laughs> so, on that post, I have a friend who is a um, orthopedic surgeon. Uh, So she's a children's orthopedic surgeon. Uh, I ran track with her in college. She's one of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my life. And she commented on, she always kind of like razzes me on my posts. But when I say like, when your MD does this, find a different MD. And she's always, well, not every MD says this. So she's the person who kind of keeps me in line with that type of thing.
0: That's good. Those are important people.
1: Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that she mentioned when I made the comment on... um on Halstead is, well, how the hell are you supposed to train a resident in only five years if we don't sleep deprive them? And my question is, why do we have to train them in five years? First off? Yes. Number good two. Question. So that's number one. so she's like, why don't like, well, if, the, if like we can't train them in five years, like, well, they should get paid for the seven or eight years that it would take. And I'm like, I agree. We should do that. Why don't we? Yep. So that's number one. But number two is an even more foundational question. it's kind of going back to the first principles thing is why do we need 10 years to train someone to use a knife? I agree. So if we look at the orthopedic surgeon as the specialist, they are the highly trained specialist that should get paid a shit ton of money for what they do. Okay. Nice. <laughs> They should be paid a shit ton of money for what they do. They should need to be a great orthopedic surgeon. Mm -hmm. That great orthopedic surgeon doesn't need to be a great communicator. They don't need to do a round of um, basically urology. Like They don't need to have a massive understanding of every single department of surgery.
0: I agree. There's a lot of fat. fat.
1: Yeah, we can train like why do we have to train them in everything? Like, yeah. I don't I don't understand.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's like if you just if you if you take the skill set that's required to be a competent surgeon mm-hmm. and if you look at their the scope of their role of what the modern day orthopedic surgeon is doing, mm-hmm then you're right. I think you look at the basket of everything they learn and you look at the basket of everything they apply on a day-to-day basis and what they need to know to apply that effectively. There's probably way more shit in that basket than needs to be there. Mm -hmm. Especially if we have an efficient divvying up of roles so that there's less overlap, which is essentially a systemic inefficiency of time and energy spent learning something that's not being applied. Yep. Then it's just, you just have to think deeper right it's like it's really easy to say oh just train in everything so that you can handle everything but if that's not how the actual system is working as it's being implemented well then you're creating a lot of a lot of waste yeah um, absolutely yeah yeah that, those are great points cuz I, I think answering a question with a question is a beautiful is, a, is an indicator that someone is number one listening number two thinking on a, a kind of a more of a macro level instead of just being in the specific you know service level, like I think it's way it's way better to ask deep questions than to give superficial answers and mm-hmm. i think and I think that's a great deep question to ask is like well you're once again, that was a permutation she was reasoning by analogy, right, mm-hmm. but when you break it down, when you blow the whole thing up and try and piece it back together with first principles, mm-hmm. you realize like, wow, we got really far from what is actually optimal mm-hmm. and if you're only you know, I always use the analogy of the microscope lens where you got that little turntable and you got like 10x, 100x, 1000x. If you're not 1000x, the solutions you come up with, however good they might be, will sometimes not be as good if you just twist that knob a couple times, go up to 10x and be like, oh, okay, I wasn't seeing all that stuff.
1: But yeah, I see see more of the variables.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. So yeah, I agree. We can if we can increase that efficiency and Because I agree, you know, the the people who sacrifice a lot, and not sacrifice, but who devote a lot of energy, time, and a lot of their lives to learning a very complex skill that only a certain subset of the population is going to have the dedication to push towards, they should be compensated based on that effort level. Absolutely. But we need to rethink how how those people are trained.
1: Yeah. And so... What if it ends up being the system is rebuilt so that that orthopedic surgeon is still making their $250,000 a year, but it's only from one surgery a day? Because the system has been set up in such a way that monies are trickled into other parts of the system better so that by the time it gets to that orthopedic surgeon, we know that we are using that person to the best of their expertise.
0: Yeah, and how about only one. Okay. So say you do five surgeries a day. Well, what if we engine, what if we rebuild a system where you don't need to see five people a day? There's actually only one person, it turns out that needs to end up coming to you. Yep. So you just end up being really good at doing that one surgery because mm-hmm. the other four people, it was prevented. The requirement for surgery was prevented from the efficiencies of the pipeline before we got to that level. Yep. And it's almost like these, these effects that happen, by just creating a good system instead of just patching up with a small permutation at the upper level. Yes. Yeah. That's powerful. That's a great
1: point. Yeah. The only way this thing changes is at a global systematic level. So this idea of rebuilding education. So if we let's use me personally as an example. Okay. So educationally, I may have not, I may have incidentally gotten some of the things that I needed to kind of build, um, health into my life. Um, Mm -hmm. but they could have systematically been there. All right. My current approach to my own personal health is I look at the lowest trained professional to deal with a certain issue,
0: which makes sense. So
1: it will be like, I will deal with my nutrition and I will deal like I've got foundational things that I know how I'm not a nutritionist, but I have enough foundational nutrition things that I know how to eat healthy enough. If Yeah.
0: Funny. You understand food. You don't need to be a nutrition expert to understand what to put in your mouth. You just need to understand the heuristics of food.
1: Exactly. If I have different goals where I want to go a little bit deeper, I might talk to someone who has more ex- a little bit more expertise in nutrition, and I'll be like, hey, like, what do you think about X, Y, Z? And they'll give me some feedback. Mm-hmm. And I haven't needed to go to a professional dietitian because I've been able to solve the problems at a more foundational level.
0: Right. And your access to information now, all of the smartest people who have dedicated literally their lives to understanding food, Mm -hmm. most of them have written books for the public, which Mm -hmm. simplify and distill the wisdom of 20, like two decades of research going into the weeds of food. Mm-hmm. And giving people the five percent wisdom that is the most important shit for ninety five percent of people to know and understand and be ext- have a, an extremely healthy relationship with food. That stuff's out there, and yeah. it's like, like Matthew Walker's book with sleep. It's the
1: same thing, like right, twenty Ball's plus book. years of education and distilled it down to a six hour audiobook. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know it's so crazy. It's so crazy how much access we have to the smartest people who, who they themselves have written on the coattails of, you know, thousands of years of education, which they've consumed and then basically vetted through their strong filter of science to mm-hmm. give you the best shit. It's like, you yeah. don't have to be an expert. You can just, it's right there on a platter for you if you're willing to actually devote the energy to an audiobook, which is not that much energy. Yeah, exactly.
1: So uh, um, as far as other health things, to make sure other things don't slip through the cracks, I have a nurse practitioner who kind of functions as my GP. So she has the ability to get routine blood work.
0: Hmm.
1: And so... I get my routine blood work done through her. I do it a little bit more often than the average person. And I get more stuff than the average person. And she will be like, everything looks good. This might be a little high. This might be a little low. You might want to consider maybe supplementing with this or maybe shifting this in your diet a little bit. Like, okay, great. If there were any red flags that she saw, she would refer me to a formal GP. Right. And I would go that route. And if there were things that the GP found, then they would go to the next level and the next level and the next level.
0: Which is the, th- that is the hierarchy that makes sense.
1: Yeah. So, so far it's been a couple of years since I've seen a GP because I've set a bunch of systems in place where that level of expertise hasn't been needed yet.
0: Yep. And,
1: and it's do, not okay. to say it never will. And so a different example was a few years ago, uh, I was riding the bike trainer, I was riding the rollers and I fell off and I dislocated my shoulder straight to ER, shoulder gets reset. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> right? And so like, I wasn't going to the personal trainer, I wasn't going to the physical <laughs> therapist, straight to the ER, shoulder gets reset.
0: Right, which is an effective use of that medical resource because that is exactly what they're there for
1: yeah so yeah it's there's there are people there are other people out there like me and what i think can happen is someone can design a health insurance system designed specifically for people like me and you Mm -hmm. and then that health insurance system we observe gets you way higher quality care at a lower price.
0: Right. Because what you need is Mm -hmm. likely not the massive breadth of things, especially, I mean, if we, if we layer that on top of this base foundational element of having come up in an educational system, which provides you a massive base understanding Mm -hmm. of being able to troubleshoot small issues, which right now are making up the bulk of the medical burden then the overall efficiency of dollar for value is significantly higher because you're not getting things you don't need and you're getting the best things of, of the things that you might need. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> now, the question is, and I mean, we need to incentivize the system for efficiency because right now a bloated system is, it seems like a bloated system is what's being financially incentivized, not for the individual, Mm -hmm. but for the people who are coordinating these systems.
1: Yep, for the policymakers, for the lobbyists, for just the momentum that's already been in play. So it may be, so if I'm looking kind of big picture, how does this rebuild happen? Maybe it ends up being someone like me or you runs for some type of civic position. Yeah, and And then creates
0: a loud voice. And that
1: rebuild happens in a city. Right. And that city becomes an example for a region. And that region becomes an example for a province. And now that person becomes a minister at the state or provincial level. Or they become a minister at the federal level.
0: Yep. So and if the public I, has an, an understanding of why those things are important and the potential benefit that come from those changes being implemented, then that they create the momentum that pushes this person along. And also, too, it's like at that community level, mm-hmm. right, if you start there, there's still going to be some you know, refining of that template that needs to happen as, as you start to come up to all these different roadblocks, you have to kind of just troubleshoot all the way through. So as it goes up in layers, that template gets more and more refined and more and more, um, I guess, it develops its own immune system, basically, where all these uncertainties that it's been exposed to have made it more resilient. Mm hmm. And proven its effectiveness, despite what people will say, oh, well, what about this? It's like, well, we face that. This is the solution and this is the outcome. Yep. And I think public education is always a great start because that's those are the people who voice their opinions as to what they want, you know, their leadership to to value. Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree, that's the only way change happens, is just starting because if you try and change the the highest, the peak of the pyramid, mm-hmm. You, like your voice isn't even going to get heard. But if you start at the bottom at a very small level and, you know, with technology and with the pace of change, I mean, that climbing of, of scale is it can happen way quicker than it ever has been able to happen before. Yep. So, yeah. I agree. Shit, well, shit. So
1: what do you, what, what do you think about my awkward. utopia? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Dude, that sounds like a glorious utopia. And I think it's, the beautiful part is it's actually not like this isn't so far fetched that it stays in the category of utopia. This is like a solution and actually a realistic solution that, cause like, you know, one of the objections people say, well, it's cost too much money. It's like, well, actually the cheaper solution. Yeah. This shit's all free. It's going to save you money. And it's just re- going to require people to understand how important it is. Like, me- like look at all the biggest things that are killing us and causing us to have a way shittier, not just, not just lifespan, but like health span, like what I think it's important to, to lower the burden of suffering. Don't you? And if someone says no, then maybe you're having the conversation with the wrong person.
1: Yeah. Like, but I, you know, I personally the, think there are enough
0: and I'll use my personal
1: bias of uh, functional range systems people, but I yeah. think there's enough people out there who have a fundamental understanding of movement who would gladly volunteer a day to talk to a local phys ed teacher and yep. teach them the principles of closing angle joint pain and carbs.
0: Well, so, so this right? is like. th- yeah, no, dude, I agree. And this is one thing that we're working on at TFC and you know, all of our, I guess, strategies or products and services that we're trying to innovate are all based on a lot of these base premises that it's really not that hard. It just requires effort by a groove of people because I think change happens collectively. And if we, you know, one of our future projects that we want to do is align a group of health professionals who are who align on a set of values and beliefs that make sense for where the future of health needs to go in order to be sustainable. And essentially just build a louder and louder, a bigger and bigger loudspeaker so that the voice of change can be disseminated further. And, you know, with an app, here's the crazy thing. If you get a group of people from functional range conditioning to talk about movement and you film it in really high quality in a way that has high production value and is very you know even different levels where okay if you if you haven't heard of this stuff before start here video yep. 1 10 minutes brief yep. intro and you can put that on a platform that yep. is free and has very low friction to be accessible by anyone like we have um teachers as part of the Footner program which is kind of our attempt to start creating a better education offering to health pros in, in a variety of worlds uh, or uh, backgrounds and you can give these high school teachers access to whatever the bleeding edge of health knowledge and health heuristics are, mm-hmm. then they can disseminate it right from the source to their students, to their school, to their principal, to their school board. Mm-hmm. And I think in, with the power of digital technology combined with the power of community and a group of people that align on a bigger purpose than just what they're doing, but they want to achieve true change. And they have the, you know, the awareness and, and, even the resources to know how that, what the path is this, regardless of how hard the path might be to go down. That is the path that is the solution. Yep. Um, you know, we've realized that building an app from scratch is probably, you know, I think Elon Musk talks about starting companies like eating glass and staring into the abyss. Well, I think eating in, or starting an app is very, very well aligned with that, but it's also the most powerful tool we have today to be able to reach thousands of people. Yeah. So, Yeah, man. I think we have, there's a huge community of people. And I think if we bring those individual nodes together in a way that benefits everyone and everyone is kind of aligned on what the purpose is and what the goals are, um, shit can change pretty quick. I think so. Yeah,
1: definitely. It's, um, yeah, again, just starts like there could be one principal at one school or on maybe a private school because a Montessori school that can do their own thing. who right. sees this vision and is like, I'm all in.
0: Yep. Maybe we need, maybe Bezos should just implement all this stuff. We've got to get his ears on this podcast because, you know, there are some wealthier people that are, you know, I, 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 I actually haven't fact checked that, but someone told me that Jeff Bezos was just like dissatisfied with the school system and just started his own school because he has a couple B's in the bank and he can, yeah. uh, you know, he can do that. And, Mm -hmm. and if it starts with people like that, and you see this, these cohorts coming out of this school, this, this private school system that are just significantly more advanced in terms of their health awareness and their ability to think and be well prepared for our future, then that creates a really good template for, for like nationalized school boards to be like, oh, well, maybe we should learn from that because that seems like a better way.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, everything that you and I know about the impact of movement on brain function and sleep on brain function, if you built an education system that those two things were prioritized going into learning, like even if you kept everything else the same, but you just had (laughs) 10 jumping jacks right before each class just to just to just fire off a few more BDNF receptors so that they're now going to learn a little bit better, like by the end of twelve years of that, like there would be some impact.
0: I agree. We just got to get. We got to build little care packages with Spark and Why We Sleep, and just fire them out to every principal we know, <laughs> and just hope that one of them grabs onto it and is like, "Oh, okay, this shit makes sense. Let's let's do that because it's worth it." Yeah, you know, if you if you if it's all about the children, no one that seems to be a good play point to start with. So,
1: yep, can agree with you more, my
0: friend. <laughs> Amazing. Well. Dude, that was a powerful conversation. I think I'm gonna listen to this probably a few times and I think it's you know, we'll 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 throw this in the footner program curriculum because we've already got a bunch of podcasts in there. We've just tried to curate all the all the best stuff that we've learned from to make it, you know, to basically create clarity amidst the the, the jungle of information available. That's really all yeah. it's not new stuff, it's just well curating. the thing is
1: like I'm nothing special in these ideas. Um I have a certain skill in that I'm okay burning things to the ground and starting over. Um, I've had, to and do I think that, that in- does
0: make you, I'll, I think that makes you special because uh, there's not many people well, with the balls to make, to, to have these conversations or I shouldn't say balls. Cause that might not be correct, but um, to have the courage to have these conversations and be, you know, know full well that they're probably going to piss off some people, but they're going to make way more people happy than they piss off. And they're speaking from a place of truth and, and and to do good, right? Because your your experience and the path that you've taken to get to where you are and how you go through your current experience makes you kind of a unicorn, right? You're not like anyone can do that. Yeah. But not that, everyone. And, that, and that's,
1: that's the point that I'm getting at is that right. like, Right, right, Nothing right. that I've done has required a radical amount of resources and
0: intelligence. Right. I agree. It's just being resourceful and being a good thinker. Yeah. And also being Which just we can a, train. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And just being an open-minded skeptic. Like I've, I've always been a skeptic, but I think the open-minded part has been something I've been definitely understanding better these days of being like I will entertain every single perspective as valid until I do my own kind of until I put it through my own meth- filter of science and which has made me realize that so many people are saying amazing things that I would have discounted um you know even five years ago mm-hmm. and uh yeah man I well I appreciate the conversation deeply and I look forward to the next one when we can pick another burn the house down topic and just <laughs> riff on it because uh
1: how about our respective professions (laughs) oh dude okay
0: done let's do an episode on physio and an episode on Cairo, or we can blend the two because we'll
1: we'll blend the two i feel like that would be a really fun one
0: and i don't think they're that different fundamentally when we get really deep into it like yes they're different but but the the way that they've kind of veered off course is very similar so um yes all right i feel like
1: i feel like uh, i guess this will be kind of a teaser for the next episode i feel like a great chiropractor and a great physical therapist on the surface, you should not be able to tell them apart.
0: I completely agree. And, and one of our foot nerds said exactly that. He's like, you know what I want? I want when someone comes to see me to not know what I am. Mm -hmm. I'm just the person that helps them. I was like, that is great. And I think that could be applied to so many different health professionals. And, uh, yeah, man, I look forward to that episode. So maybe we'll we'll give this a month to Simmer and then I'll uh, get back in touch. Love your content. And if people want to find you, where's the best? Because you're, so you're in Tampa, right?
1: Yes, I am in Tampa. Um, uh, you can The place where I put out the most of my content is on my Instagram. It's just my name, at Moses Bernard. My website is the exact same thing. And so it's www.MosesBernard.com. Uh, I'm uh, working on some online projects right now. So I've got uh, an Ultimate Spine course that I uh, just launched in March. Uh, the next round of signups for that is going to be in July. Uh, sorry, yeah, early July um, in the educational thing we talked about, I want to find ways to distribute this knowledge to educational curriculums and educational systems. So what you talked about kind of like a really uh, high production value app type thing. Like yeah. I would like to have some just some really basic spine information that I can just filter out to great uh, grade school teachers, high school PE teachers that just teaches them some foundational things that they can now apply to people. So. um, I'm learning from regular people to see how to best deliver that to the masses. So that's uh, the project I'm working on right now. So that's where to find me.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for your time and for the great conversation. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to picking this up on our next conversation and seeing what kind of discussions this, um, this episode stimulates. And, you know, the hope is that people take some of this information that are in, Realms of what we covered that actually have the ability to make an on the ground impact, right? That high school yeah, teacher sure. that yeah. hears you're this, you're listening and-
1: to this, and you've got a few billions in the bank. Like, <laughs> let's have a conversation. Uh, your <laughs> yeah, high yeah. school teacher, uh, reach out to me. Let's have a conversation. Your uh, policymaker, reach out to me. Let's have a conversation.
0: Agreed. Yeah, Bezos, let's get on this. This is the way. So <laughs> we want to help you. All right. Thanks, Moses. I appreciate it. And to to everyone listening, I hope that benefited. Um, I hope that gave you some value in terms of your own life and uh, we'll catch you next week.